every story has a beginning. And the beginning of stories lay the foundation for which the rest of the story will build upon. In the beginning of stories, we are introduced with the main character, the theme. Subtle breadcrumbs are often dropped that we picked up later in the story as the plot develops. Our Bible begins in a similar way with Genesis chapter 1 that we heard earlier. Genesis 1 lays the foundation that the rest of the Scripture will build upon. Like a scaffolding, the rest of the Bible builds upon the foundation that is laid in those first verses and chapters. In fact, I believe that if you misunderstand Genesis, you will misunderstand the rest. Genesis is rightly named the beginning because it gives clarity about this world gives clarity about you and I and our relationship to one another, and more importantly, our relationship to the One who has created us. Psalm 104 takes the prose of Genesis 1 and puts it to poetry. It takes the cold words of Genesis 1 and breathes life and beauty and wonder as the psalmist raises the the creation account and puts it to song, puts it to melody, to music, that the people of God can marvel and wonder at the glory of God in creation. Psalm 104 lays a foundation of worship by pointing us to the One who created all things and sustains all things by His power. Psalm 104 reminds us that God is God and we are not by inviting us to delight in God and and invite us to God's own delight of His creation. My friend, I invite you to turn to Psalm 104. In these 35 verses, the psalmist walks through the creation account. Not perfectly. He doesn't follow exactly the day-to-day building and revelation that we find in Genesis 1 but picks up particular ideas and particular themes and allows them to turn in one's mind in reflection not only on the truth that God creates, but that God provides all things that His creation needs. Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of His chamber on the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot, and He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes His messengers winds and His ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place 
that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow from the livestock, for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. With all the beasts of the forest, when all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar with their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all, the earth and and full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, Praise the Lord. Well, like the psalm that we considered last week in the Hallel, this psalm also begins and ends with praise or hallelujah. A right orientation that God is the focus of worship. God's glory is the object of our worship. And this psalm takes us from a heaven down viewpoint where we tend to look at everything from our vantage point where we tend to view life from our perch from our position and calls us to consider the world around us in a way that turns our eyes towards God 
It causes us to consider the world as it was created by God. And for us to give Him glory where glory is due. The psalmist in Psalm 104 invites us to sing praises to God who rules and reigns over all things. The point of this psalm is an invitation to rejoice with the psalmist in a celebration of God's splendor and rule over every corner of our lives. All for His glory and for our eternal good. This psalmist is teaching the congregation in Israel and us to rejoice in this simple truth that God reigns over every corner of our life. That God is the cause of all good things in our life. That everything that we see, everything around us, the things we hold in our hands, the things we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch, everything is from God. And therefore, God must be praised. This hymn of praise celebrates the way in which the created order reveals God's glory as He goes about providing abundantly for all living things. I hope that you saw as we went throughout the the many verbs that demonstrated this particular wonder of God's creation. That He is the one. He is the only one behind the splendor and beauty and majesty and greatness of this creation. Consider even what, what you heard mentioned as being under God's rule. If you have your Bibles open, I'll point them out to you again. That water and clouds and wind and fire and mountains and thunder and valleys and springs and hills and beasts and birds and branches and fruit, livestock, food, wine, oil, bread, trees, wild goats, these little rock badgers running around, the sun, the moon, the lions, all were under His care. Nothing, brothers and sisters, in this cosmos, nothing in our world under the heat of the sun escapes God's oversight. God rules and reigns over all things. And so this morning, I want us to consider two main truths. As the psalmist calls on the congregation here to join in the praise of God for creation, he informs our minds in two main ways. Now, the first is is really the main idea. And the second is a subsequent idea that follows as the psalmist concludes. The first, the psalmist leads us to delight. To delight. This this entire psalm, from verse 1 through 34, calls us to delight in God. Not to delight in creation, 
That would be a wrong understanding of this text. But rather to delight in God through creation. You see, if we delight merely in creation and it stops there, then we worship the creation rather than the Creator. No, no, no. The creation is to be like a pipe that water flows through. That leads to us worshiping and delighting in the God who would make such an orderly and intricate creation. That God is the giver and maker and sustainer. But secondly, and perhaps you found that final verse quite strange. You know, it was all joy and excitement and wonder and happiness, and all of a sudden it was like, I hope people die. You see, if we rightly delight in God's creation, then we are broken and grieved when men and women created in God's image seek to diminish, distort, and destroy God's created order. This is why the psalmist concludes with such a, uh, a sorrow or sad note. As he prays there in verse 35, let, let the sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. In other words, he leads us to avoid those who defile God's creation. To avoid those that distort the very thing that is to lead us to delight. Let's consider these two this morning. First, we ought to delight in God, the maker and giver of life. There's a number of truths that this particular psalm makes emphatically clear for us as Christians. Number one, that God is the Creator. No one can read Psalm 104 and conclude that some other being, that some other theory somehow trumps the point that this passage makes. This passage is clear, isn't it? It is abundantly clear that God is the one who created the world. Well, this is what we saw in the revelation in Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? That God is the one who formed this world. He is the one who created the stars in the sky. He's the one who formed day and night. He's the one that created water. He's the one who created land. He's the one who created the creatures that creep and the, the seas that are brimming, the, the psalmist says. Creatures innumerable of living things, both small and great. God is the maker. And if God is the maker, then God is the one who has authority over his creation, he's the one in charge. He's the one that gets to decide what a rock does and what a rock doesn't. Let me point out a couple of those for you this morning. Look with me at verse, verse 16, for example. Verse 16 through 18. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that He planted. So the psalmist paints this wondrous picture of God going out planting trees. 
Well, why did God plant these trees? Why, why are there trees? Well, what does he say? In them the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. There's a purpose behind these trees. They provide shelter and protection. They care for these animals that God has created. There's purpose behind His creation. The high mountains. Oh, you wonder, what, what are these mountains for? In Israel, as they would have looked at the mountain ranges surrounding them, what are they for? What's the purpose of these? Just to gander at, to look at from afar? No, he says there, look, verse 18. For, purpose, they're for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. The psalmist is considering the purposefulness behind God's creation. There's an orderliness to his creation. God hasn't just randomly created a bunch of things, but every molecule, every atom, every intricate part of creation is purposeful. It's meaningful. It leads to us then to delight in the fact that God is full of wisdom. Well, friend, this is how the psalmist begins, isn't it? Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. God, you're not just great. You're very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. The language that the psalmist uses here is that of royalty. He's a royal king. And this is his kingdom, his creation that he has formed and made. Everything about his creation is orderly in which he's made to display his glory. Every aspect of God's creation is meant to reveal his character. This is what we considered a number of weeks ago in Psalm 19. That the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The Creator reveals Himself through His creation. But we notice also that God is not only the Creator, the one who sets the bounds for the land and the sea, the one who makes the mountains to rise and the valleys to sink low, but that God is also the provider. You see, one of the things that distinguishes a Christian worldview and an understanding of God from the world that we live in is that we don't believe that God just sort of knocked over the dominoes or got the clock started and, and He's kind of uninvolved. No, Psalm 104 makes emphatically clear that God is in the details of everyday life, isn't He? What he says. Well, look here, uh, for example, in verses 10 through 13. Who is the one who causes water to water the creatures? It says, You make springs gush forth. You do these things. All of the benefits of water is from God. From your abode, you water, verse 13, the mountain. God is the one who provides water so that creatures can live. 
Now, of course, if we go back to our little biology classes that we took so many, many years ago, we learned that water is essential for life. No water, no life. That's how God created this world. This is part of His orderliness. It's a way that God provides, sustains His creation. The psalmist is making clear that God is the sustainer of life. Well, not only does it provide water, look there at verses 14 through 18. He provides food for His creation. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Well, how could we say that? Of course, we know if we go out and water it and fertilize it and do all the things we're supposed to do to grass, it just sort of just naturally grows, isn't it? The psalmist is making so clear that while, yes, there is a natural orderliness to growth, ultimately all of it must be attributed to the one who created it. God created grass to grow. God's the one who created trees to grow. He made them to do what they do. He made plants that man can cultivate. He made these things so that they might provide what we need. So when we have these things, look there, verse 14 and 15, these wonderful gifts that are given to man, all of them we must attribute come from his hand. He brings forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. You see, these are gifts from God, not to be refused, but to be enjoyed, not to be indulged. Now, Lest this become maybe your favorite verse about wine, let me, let me point to you where we distort God's Word and miss out on the delight. Now, a couple words of caution. Alcoholism is a serious problem, a serious sin. The Bible makes clear that drunkenness is sin. But at the same time, the Bible affirms the gift of alcohol as a gift not to be used, not to be used uh, to worship the creation, but to delight in the Creator. Friend, look at verse 15, and wine to gladden the heart of man. You know, we use alcohol to abuse it, to escape, to run away from our problems, but God gave fermented grapes that are turned into alcohol to be consumed to delight in the Creator. The Bible throughout the Old and New Testament uses wine as a symbol of God's abundant blessing in the life of His people. It's no accident that the very first miracle of Jesus is turning water into wine. It was not a mere parlor trick. Jesus was declaring something. Jesus, by turning water into wine, was saying, the new creation has come, for the Creator has come. That the enjoyment of eternal life has come, and He is inaugurating it with the one thing that the nation of Israel would have inaugurated it with, and that is the blessing of God's abundant fruitfulness in the life of His people. 
You see, if you don't have grapes, you can't make wine. And if you don't have grapes, it's probably because you didn't have water. But if you had water that grow the grapes and grapes that turn into wine, all of that is traced back to a God who gives and sustains and supplies. It was an offering to God, not to be abused, but to enjoy for His sake for His glory. This is why Spurgeon could say that he's going to smoke a cigar for the glory of God. He wasn't being trite or, or seeking to diminish the problems that, you know, cigars can obviously wreak uh, havoc on our bodies. But that if we do things that God has given us for His glory and not our own, then we're on the right track. This is what the psalmist is inviting us in to do. To, to delight in God's creation. Just as we delight from the oils and breads that we eat. To delight in all aspects of the goodness that He has made. God is the one who sustains. And friends, this is exactly the point that Jesus builds upon in Matthew chapter 6. So when Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, It is this particular psalm, or the ideas built into this psalm, that Jesus turns to in Matthew chapter 6 when He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now what does He do? How does He argue His case? Well, He takes the reader and the hearer here in in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, to Psalm 104. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus here builds on the very point we're considering that God is the source of the sustaining work of His creation. Are they not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not erased like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? And he concludes that by saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, God is a providential God. He provides for His creation. And brothers and sisters, we ought not doubt that He will provide for us. Perhaps this morning you're in a particular season of life where you're wrestling and your faith is diminishing because you wonder whether or not God will provide for you. Let this psalm be a testament to what you know and experience in creation. That God is Not only the maker, but the sustainer of life. He is the one who will provide. Seek Him. Don't seek to gather yourself. Seek Him and He will provide all that you need. We see also that as we delight in God as creator and sustainer, the psalmist also calls us to delight in God the Sovereign. We must separate and understand that providence and sovereignty are two different aspects of God and His attributes. 
To say that God is sovereign is to say that God rules and reigns as a king over His creation. This is the overarching point of the psalm. That God is a royal king and that He is the one who holds court over His kingdom. He is the one who is bringing all things about to its appointed ends. This point comes clear in a number of ways. First, in verses 19 through 23. When one considers in this ancient world the most powerful things that a human being could experience, they naturally would go to the sun. The sun in the sky was seen as the most powerful aspect of creation. In fact, the Egyptians worshipped the sun giving credit that the Son was the one who gave life. But notice here in verse 19, that He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows it's time for setting. Of course, the Jewish people organized their calendar around the lunar schedule, around the moon. This was to point and remind God's people that God was in control of time. He was the one who formed time. That day and night were not ruling them, but rather that God was. That the sun in the sky was set for its own time. It is, uh, again, pointing to the orderliness of creation, but also to God's reign over it. Consider even verse 20. You made the darkness, and it is night. For you and I, darkness may not seem quite as frightening, but to a nomadic people, to a people who didn't have modern amenities, the night was a frightening time. You might lose a child in the night. You might lose a herd in the night. You might lose something quite valuable in the night. But as we see, even in verse 21, the the great roaring lions are under God's sovereign care. The psalmist makes clear in our mind that God is the one who rules and reigns over all. Well, if it wasn't the sun that was great, what else could be great but the Leviathan? There is something great about the ocean, isn't it? If you've ever had the chance to sail or to be upon the ocean or even to fly over it, you begin to quickly understand your smallness. As you move away from the the coast and and the horizon of land and you're in the midst of the sea, in the midst of an ocean where there's no boundaries, you begin to understand that you're in a place of great vulnerability. The vastness of it. Consider even in these recent days if you've seen uh, some of these giant killer whales doing some of their crazy uh, behavior and activity, jumping on ships and flipping them over, Here, the the psalmist refers to the Leviathan, which was most likely a giant whale. Some giant creature that was so powerful and so great. But regardless of its exact identity, the point is, is that God is in control. That God is more powerful than even the greatest beast of the sea. Brothers and sisters, God is the one who rules and reigns over all. And the author of Hebrews picks up this particular psalm to point to 
the one who created all things, his name is Jesus. Long ago and in many ways and in many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over this creation. What the psalmist attributes to God, the the New Testament says, is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the one, He is the point to which all of creation points. The one who is greater than all things, even sin and death. The one that the that Paul writes about in Colossians chapter 1, that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Brothers and sisters, we might worry about the, the demise of this world. The collapse of Western civilization. We might be concerned about political powers and positions. Even rogue generals seeking to subvert their leaders creating great tension upon the world scale that we've not known for many years. And as this world seeks to jockey and move for position and power, we must, as God's people, remember that there is one who is greater than all these things. And His name is Jesus. Jesus has defeated sin and death. And Jesus will come again in glory and in power, and every knee shall bow before Him. And we ought to delight in this God, lest be be the one who is swept away in judgment. Lastly, and very quickly, we see the psalmist concludes there in verse 35, let the sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. God delights in His creation. This is what 31 through 34 was all about. And if God delights in His creation, we ought to delight in it too. And we ought to avoid those who do not delight in God's creation. You see, those of us, if we remember our life before Christ, We sought to destroy His creation. We sought to diminish His glory. And this is why the psalmist calls for the removal of sinners. Because sinners seek to rob God of glory. What we believe took place in Genesis chapter 3 was an exchange of kingship. We believe that what Adam and Eve did was rob God of His royal throne, taking His crown as their own by living life their way rather than God's way. 
If all of creation is meant to display the glory of God, then any attempt by His creation to rob Him and diminish His glory is an act of treason punishable by death. This is what Genesis 3 teaches us. That when you and I, by our sin, rebel against His good order, we rob Him of His glory and we distort His creation. This is what sin is, brothers and sisters. It is a distortion of God's created order. Friend, this is what you see playing out in the media, in the cultural conversation of our day. An utter distortion of an orderly creation. We are seeing, not for the first time, let me, let me caution you from thinking that what you see playing out in the sexual revolution in our culture is somehow new. Brothers and sisters, this is old as the Garden of Eden. Did God really say male and female? I don't know. What did Genesis 1 say? Did God really say one man and one woman for a lifetime? Did God really say that the family was the centerpiece of civilization? And if you distort and confuse what a family is, and who a mom is, and who a dad is, and who children are, and who's in charge, and who's not in charge, if you begin to distort and twist that, what will happen to civilization? Did God really say we needed the family in order to function as a society? Brothers and sisters, consider even Paul's indictment in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The creation reveals the knowledge of God and the orderliness around us. No scientist in his right mind would ever think that it doesn't. Christian or non-Christian alike, they can see clearly truth being revealed. For the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Friend, do you believe that? That it does not take a PhD in biology to know what a man is and what a woman is. It does not take a dissertation on queer theory to understand that there are certain parts that men have and women have and that they're not compatible between two men and two women. That you cannot have babies that way. And thus you cannot have civilization. For though they knew God and did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Futile in their thinking. Foolish in their thinking. 
Thinking they were wise, they became fools. The psalmist in Psalm 104 reflects on the glory of God displayed in creation and what we do as sinners is diminish and distort it in such a way that we think we are wise, but in fact we are becoming more and more stupid. Brothers and sisters, God in His kindness, I believe, in His tremendous goodness and kindness towards all of us, is making sin so clear to us that we cannot neglect the truth that is being revealed. Oh, he goes on to write, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving them their due penalty for their, for their error. Brothers and sisters, this these things are not new or novel. These are old. These are old sins that seek to destroy God's creation. What is our response? Well, our response is to seek to reclaim God's glory through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our response isn't to build a new nation filled with just good Christian people, but to be a part of building a new creation. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17? For those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, if you have believed upon Christ, you are a new creation. If you're here this morning and you're confused about what you are and who you are to be, well, let me encourage you to believe in the one who knew what the will of God was and obeyed it. The one who was never confused about what was up and what was down, what was right and what was wrong. His name was Jesus. And where Adam and Eve rebelled against God and chose to live life their own way, Jesus lived a perfect life in submission to the Father's will. He displayed the glory of God. He delighted in God's glory. He pointed people to the Father at every chance He got, never seeking His own glory. The Bible says He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, dying as an atoning sacrifice for our sin so that all those who would believe in Him might have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, may we delight in the glory of Christ by submitting our life to His plan and His purpose. Join me in rejoicing with the psalmist in celebration of God's splendor and rule over every corner of your life. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign in salvation. And He is sovereign that He would get the glory and not man. Delight in your Maker and Sustainer. Delight in the ways that God provides and keeps you do not give yourself to the fleeting things of this world that seek to draw your worship and attention away from the Creator, but entrust yourself to the One who rules and reigns over all. When darkness is in your face, sing with the congregation, great is thy faithfulness. 
In the midst of the darkest roads you've ever walked, the the most difficult days, avoid the ways of the world that seek to diminish God's hand in creation, who, who seek to distort His created order, who ultimately seek to destroy the goodness of God in creation. But join in the psalmist. Join in Psalm 104. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in You. We rejoice in Your creation. We delight in it. Thank You for every good gift You have given to us through Christ our Lord. And I pray that for those that might be in the midst of darkness right now, in the midst of difficulty, perhaps of their own doing because they've lived in rebellion against You, I pray that they would submit themselves to You in this moment. They would see that You are a God who is faithful even when they are faithless. That those gathered here who claim the name of Christ that are in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, that they would fear no evil, but they would give themselves to a God who reigns and rules over all. Who have ordered our days, who have ordered our ends, who has given us breath by Your Spirit, and who takes away life to which we return to dust. You truly are a majestic God. And we give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray.